0: David Frum is a senior editor at The Atlantic and the author of nine books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Right Man. From 2001 to 2002, he served as a speechwriter and special assistant to President George W. Bush. He and his wife, Danielle Crittenden Frum live in Washington, D.C. and Wellington, Ontario. They have three children. Welcome to The Bibliophile.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I'd like to start off with uh, David Copperfield, in the sense that I want to look at your childhood,
1: if you don't mind, a little bit. Oh, I thought you wanted to s- discuss great opening lines. <laughs> Whether I am to be the hero of my own life, this narrative shall shortly prove. Do I have that exactly right, it's or a b- just a bit of be? B- b- b-? Sounds familiar. Your father, Murray, was yes. born in
0: 1931. His parents were from Poland. Most of the family died in the Holocaust. His parents ran a grocery store. He studied and became a dentist in 1956 and got into real estate in 1970 and made a fortune in strip malls. He collected African art and then Renaissance art. He donated a Bernini bronze of the crucifixion to the AGO. At the time, perhaps you could tell the story,
1: Oh, well, this is, there's so many great stories here, but the story was um, that my father had acquired this work of art whose origins were very contested. Um, everyone knew it was from the 17th century. Everyone knew it was bronze. Everyone knew it was very beautiful. Uh, the question was who had done it. It looked a lot like the manner of Bernini, and there was a question, was it done by a student? Was it a copy or was it an original? And my father worked with a couple of great art experts, and they spent many years on the trail sleuthing to prove that it was indeed a handwork of the great Bernini. Um, Once you proved that, it became too valuable. You couldn't afford the insurance anymore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Fifty million bucks. You couldn't keep it in a private house, um, and uh, so, it had to, so it went to the AGO, and it is now a, a centerpiece of their of their collection. You see it just as you walk into the middle of the European Gallery, and it is indeed a stunningly beautiful thing. The the loincloth around um, the crucified Jesus's middle, it um, flows out away from the body in a line that's about three feet long, and just in a pure line in space.
0: So my question is, did he collect books as well?
1: Uh, my dad was a great reader, but he was not a book collector. Or I should qualify that. Um, what he had a big collection of were um, books of art, which he used in his sleuthing. That is he... The the, reference? Yeah, that you, so when he was on the trail for something, he, you'd have these stacked volumes everywhere. And his method was he would, he would get interested in a period, he began with African art, and he'd buy a little something. And then he would start studying. He was a, and with my late mother, Barbara, who was a uh, very disciplined scholar, they would start cross-referencing, cross and checking and, and and mastering the domain. Uh, but the kind of book that, that you read, these were really, um, these are catalogs, uh, these were reference books, these were profiles of people's collections. Um, they were not books with beginnings, middles, and ends.
0: I collect bibliographies of uh, publishers. Okay, so same, same
1: idea. idea, same idea.
0: Yeah. Uh, you mentioned your mother. Um, I feel almost like she's my mother because a lot I spent Canadians feel that so way. many evenings yeah. listening to her. She uh, was an American-born CBC journalist who broke into the CBC with a program called As It Happens. A tough, well-informed uh, interviewer. And then from 1981 until her death in 1992, she was, again, like an outstanding interviewer for the national broadcaster in Canada. Mm-hmm. And your sister wrote her biography. Maybe you could talk a bit about that.
1: It, it, uh, my sister, Linda, who is now a member of the Canadian Senate, wrote an absolutely beautiful book about Barbara. Um, children's uh, biographies of, of prominent parents are not always a reliable source of information, mm-hmm. um, but this is a meticulous uh, book, um, carefully researched, um, by using both the paper record and interviews with everyone who knew her, but also with um, our, our own mem- memories of her. One of the important things to understand about my mother, my mother died at 54, I'm 58 now. She was diagnosed when she was 37, but she was not given 17 years to live, she was given two years to live eight times. And so there this. We grew up in a household, um, and maybe this to our goes to our topic for later in the book, mm-hmm. a particularly doom haunted household. Because by the time we were adolescents, we knew my mother was ill. We didn't know exactly the full dimension of it. That we would learn in our twenties. Um, but we had this overhang of her illness. And then on my father's side, there's something that. You knew, but you didn't think about it until much later. You mentioned my father's family was um, mostly murdered. Mm. My My father's parents emigrated to Canada in 1930. He was born in 1931. Their family disapproved of the emigration, and some of the family went to Palestine, but most stayed in Poland. Had my father's parents stayed, done what their parents wanted, Yeah they would have been murdered in 1941 or 42 with most of the Polish Jews. My father would have been at that point 11 or 12. He would have been murdered too. And, and you wouldn't have been around. Right. And so that sense of, you know, that this all could have ended with a bullet in a forest somewhere or in a starved to death in some ghetto. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> we had these this heavy background and it wasn't a gloomy household, but it was a household with a lot of knowledge that things don't have to go right. Yeah, a very European outlook as opposed to North America. Very European, yes. And and I think, as I look back on it, I mean, it's one of those things I don't think as a young person you're conscious of the influences. But as as I look back on it, one of the, um, the themes of a lot of my books is um, whatever I'm writing about, that there is a, a mistrust of optimism, a sense of things that can go easily wrong.
0: Which, I you know I'm jumping ahead here, but in Trumpocracy, which is what we're here to talk about, as well. You end with a chapter
1: called Hope. Yes. That's out of character, is it? It's a little out of character, but um, but what I warn in that book is that the sunny American certainty that things must turn out for the best Mm. is the greatest obstacle to things turning out for the best. Um, The awareness that things can go wrong is also a resource, but I insist at the end that um, this is a case where the future really is in people's hands and what happens next people will decide for themselves, mm-hmm. and not just in the United States, because the Trumpocracy problem presents itself across Europe, mm-hmm. um, and in many ways in worse forms in Europe, and so and now in Brazil. So mm-hmm. people in all of these countries have to make political ethical choices about the kind of political system they're going to have, whether liberal democracy is a future, or we're going to move to some kind of authoritarianism, neo-fascism even.
0: They have to decide to get involved is what they have to do. If they don't do that, then then we're going to get the, uh, you know.
1: Exactly. Exactly so. Your childhood, what did you read as a kid? I was a voracious reader. I read mostly history, uh, but some fiction. And I started at a very early age. But the fiction that had the biggest impact, a friend of my parents, uh, gave me... For my eighteenth birthday, I turn my son. My birthday is in June the thirtieth, so I get books at the beginning of the summer. Hmm. Summer holiday gave me a very beautiful twelve-volume edition of *Remembrance of Things Past*, which I. One Proust is one of those things. It's a very it's a very easy choice. Read fifty pages. You either can't go on or you can't stop. And not everything is for you. There are lots of things in this world that are. I mean, uh, there are a lot of great books that are not for me. But this one was was for me, and uh, so, and I've I read it again and again. It's had a huge influence on um, so many of. of uh, not the way I write, thank God. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> only about two hundred and forty pages. Right. No, I I I, I value brevity, um, but the the way I think and his his integration of psych of individ- the depths of individual psychology into mm. human behavior. Yeah, I was
0: surprised at how prominently jealousy uh, showed itself in-, in his work.
1: Well, I-, I have to say that that had a very negative impact on me in this way, which is I-, I read Proust, as I said, the summer of my 18th birthday, so I didn't know a lot about women. And uh, Proust, who is, of course, not only a gay man, but a very promiscuous gay man, uh, and who moved in a very promiscuous culture. He would change a lot of the men in his life into women. And so yeah. that people are always like, you know, you're at dinner and the the woman stands up, gets off and vanishes with the waiter. And, and I'm reading this and he's like, does, does this happen? This this is terrifying. <laughs> and, and, and I come back to later and say, like, can't you trust anyone? Okay. He goes, that's not how women behave <laughs> at all. <laughs> I was completely misinformed. <laughs> It wasn't all good news for Proust then. <laughs> no, actually, there's a big relief. I mean, you, yeah. I, you mean what, what? they're devoted and loyal. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. And loyalty is big with
1: Trump, isn't it? Well, loyalty up, not loyalty down. That's right. Yeah, one way. Uh, but what else? Um, a lot of history. Um, okay. And I grew up in the age when, ever, when there was only paper, uh, when there was mm-hmm. no internet. And one of the things that, and I was usually interested in things that other people weren't. And one, I have I have two contributions to human knowledge. I think that I've, i one, well, the one that's truly original is my discovery that Labrador feet smell like popcorn. And test this sometime. It's true. Okay. Um, just Labradors. Just Labradors. Okay. Uh, um, and people say. Why are you smelling Labrador feet? And when you own a lot, as many Labradors as that, you don't get a lot of choice about that, because they stick your, their feet in your face when you're rolling around <laughs> with them. But the second contribution to human knowledge is how to become an expert on something that you don't know anything about. And my way was you go to a, a good library, a university library, ideally. You go to the section where you know, whatever, paintings of Caravaggio, Reformation history, pull a book at random off the shelf and look at its footnotes and note the books that appear most often there. And pull out a couple of them and read their footnotes and see the books that appear most often there. And when you've done that double regression, the books, the three or four books that appear most often at the regressed footnotes, those are the books you need to read. Then you read those books and then you read their footnotes and then you start reading the books in their footnotes and at the end of half a dozen books you... You don't know, you're not an expert, but you know what the you know who the experts are mm-hmm. and what the experts are talking about. And who they're referring to. And who they're referring to. And that yeah. prevents you from following. One of the problems with being self-educated is that you sort of can follow these trails into thickets, um, not understanding that they're thickets. So you need always to be understanding the val- that the people who really study whatever the subject is closely, they are in dialogue with one another. And to understand the topic, you have to understand what the dialogue is about. Okay. Again, this
0: is a question I was going to save for later, but based on that process, what are the four or five books that you'd recommend for people to get a handle on what's going on today?
1: What's going on today in the United States or around the world too? Um, that's a good question. So let's let's start. Well, let's start by saying what what do we think is is going on? I think one of the things um, people need first to reckon with is. The magnitude and the the enduring magnitude of the shock that economies took in the Great Recession. And let me, uh, I'll recommend a very accessible book, which happens to be written by a friend of mine, Don Peck, a colleague at Atlanta called Pinched. And Pinched takes a lot of the research that was done on the generation of the 1930s to show how enduring the effects of an economic crisis like 2008, 2009 are on the people who lived through it. Um, and I think that's an important part of... And you can then project that on what people went through, the Euro crisis. Just, so
0: if we just stop there, what's... what's? I look back on the 1930s and I see real uh, pain and yeah. uh, suffering and uh, hardship. 2008, it's sort of something that was in the news. I didn't experience it personally. Are you saying that people experienced it in in 2008 the same way that those in the 30s did?
1: Well, let me say, you may be reflecting here a Canadian bias, because one of the reasons that Canada has been largely immune from these Mm -hmm. trends is that of all the developed countries, Canada had the mildest experience of 2008-2009. Canada was the first certainly of the G7, I think of the OECD to return to pre-crisis levels of employment and pre-crisis levels of output. So in Canada, no, 2008, 2009 was not an especially harsh experience. It was a recession and people lost jobs. Mm-hmm. By and large, people did not lose their houses. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the United States, 2008, 2009 was the worst crisis since the 1930s. And Lots of foreclosures. And- foreclosures and uh, and prolonged periods of out of work. Also, America has a much more threadbare social safety net mm-hmm. uh, than, than Canada's. So when... If you're a non-disabled person, um, and you don't have children in the house, when you exhaust your unemployment benefits, and that happened, those typically last for 13 weeks, and they're sometimes then extended in economic emergencies. They're ultimately extended to 99 weeks. But once you exhaust those, it's amazing how little there is for you. There are food stamps. Uh, There's, in some cases, Medicaid, which cover. But, you know, how do you pay the rent? You can't pay the rent with food stamps. You can't yeah. pay the rent with Medicaid. Um, it was it was savage. And then what happened in Europe in the in countries like Greece and Italy and Spain mm-hmm. after the Euro crisis in 2010? Again, they have a thicker social safety net, um, but it was hard to find work. I mean, idleness. You, even if you keep eating, if you feel idle and useless, uh, that uh, yeah, that's psychologically so soul, yeah. destroying. Yeah. So I think that's part of the story. But I, what about the books? Okay, so another part, of, another thing, I think you need to read is uh, some of the critical literature on immigration, because one of the triggers for this um, global populist movement is the shock of immigration. Mm-hmm. There really isn't good material on that. There's on the economics of material, probably the um, the, the best thing is the work of a man named George Borjas, B-O-R-J-A-S. Um, in his most recent, I've just blanked on the title of his most recent and sort of fullest and most scholarly book. Um, I'd also recommend a new book by um, Raihan Salam, who's uh, an American-born of Bengali parents. He's written about the cultural aspects, just how disorienting it is to live in a world in which, you know, you're, you grow up and you're used to seeing that your streets have one kind of shop, speaking one kind of language, and now they're all different. And maybe people shouldn't react that way, but that's how enough of them do to have a political impact. Mm. Um, I think uh, you need. To know something about the democratic breakdown that happened in Europe in the 1930s, not because not because we're like that, but, but actually to understand the differences between then and now, because and some, so many people are drawing parallels to that. Right. Well, you need to know how. One of I think one of the things that Trumpocracy and the things I've done is to say I have this joke that there are a lot of stops on the train line of bad before you get to Hitler station. It's like it, gum disease. It's like gum disease, not hard. So you need, to, but you need to understand what happened then, so you need to know what to worry about, but also how it's different, know. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, what happened in the countries of Europe, and, the, and not just Germany, was very extreme. But so, you know, uh, Richard Evans' first volume of his big book on the coming of the Third Reich is, is a useful place to, to look. And there's a, a new book out about the experience of the losing countries in the First World War called The Vanquished that describes what went on in some of the smaller places, you know, Hungary and Bulgaria, places that we don't don't tend to get the headline attention in the history books, but that also went through this democratic recession. Larry Diamond is the um, author of the phrase, the democratic recession, and his mostly books and articles, mostly articles rather than books, mm-hmm. um, but you'd go through those things to see that the number of democracies in the world came to a kind of peak in 2005, and it's actually been receding since then. And even within countries that remain technically Democracies. Um, There's been a deterioration in a lot of liberties and and quality of governance. See, in place like Poland, remains a democracy, but it's it's a democracy with an increasingly authoritarian tendency. Uh, Do you do you pay
0: extra attention to Poland just because
1: of your heritage or not? I I pay extra attention to Poland, but only secondarily because of my heritage. The real reason I pay extra attention to Poland is two of my closest friends are very active in Polish politics. Actually, more than two, but uh, but. Mm. so we spent a, I've spent a lot of time in Poland visiting them. My, my wife co-wrote a cookbook with um, Ann Applebaum, who's the historic speech, and Anne co-wrote a cookbook together based on one of our summers with them at their beautiful country house in Poland. Radik Sikorski is her husband, and he was a former Polish defense and foreign minister. Um, remains a very po- prominent figure in Polish life. Um, so I studied that situation closely. And then just by accident, I spent a lot of time in Hungary um, in 2016. I was commissioned... To write an article for the Atlantic. We're wandering away from the Biblio question.
0: We are, yes, but that's my job. You're, you're, you're,
1: it's not your job. <laughs> I, would, I, I was going to write an article about Viktor Orban's Hungary and I spent about a month there and then the Trump thing became realer and realer and I ended up cannibalizing a lot of that article.
0: Any other books that you, that jumped to mind or we, yeah, that's I, a pretty I, good list? I would so.
1: recommend two other things um, that are new. Um, books by Yasha Monk, about democracy and populism. And a very short but very fruitful book by a German named Jan Werner Muller called What is Populism? That it's a, it's maybe 80 pages but incredibly fruitful to read. What's the role of a political book? What it is or what it should be. Um, because let's face it, a lot of the most influential political books in history have been maligned and not very intelligent I mean probably the single most influential political book in American history is Atlas Shrugged um, and uh, I don't think it's influence is beneficial but it provi- political books provide people with ideas yeah um, ideas uh, I think people who read less than you do can often be very romantic about books um, and it's just as possible for there to be a bad book as there is for there to be or a malign book, as there is for there to be a malign speech, malign TV show. Uh, so I, I I the role is it it introduces people to concepts they wouldn't otherwise meet you know, that are fuller and thicker and more sophisticated. Yeah. it's a way to present a more complicated idea. Right. Right. But that's that's not always a positive thing for people, because often the idea is you know, I, I, we said at the beginning, where I talked about how you have to understand what people are in dialogue with. But a lot mm-hmm. of people go to books because they are looking for that complete experience. The answer to all the questions. Mm-hmm. And they find the book that seems to answer all the questions.
0: That's not necessarily true. They don't think, not all the questions. I think they want, they want the new insight into yeah. something they've been thinking about. But the most powerful books often do that. The you best mean, books do not. You mean like a philosophy, like Marxism or yeah, something like yeah, that?
1: Yeah. yeah. What the role of a political book should be is to introduce you not only to new ideas, but to new information. To challenge you, always to be aware that it's in conversation, in dialogue with things that have gone before and things that will come after. I'd
0: also say it, introduce, it can introduce a politician to a larger audience. Look at Obama's book when he was a senator. Well, I mean, that's obviously it's a marketing tool.
1: Well, he wrote he wrote two books, one his autobiography before he knew he was going to go into politics, and that is a much more revealing book than a, it was a very cagey book for a memoirist, but a very revealing book for a politician. Then the book he wrote as a politician, the Audacity of Hope, that was a standard issue a political book and uh, really super boring and right something you could give it give out to people. Yeah, right? something that that avoided mistakes. It's almost like a business card. Right. But even there are always mistakes. So Hillary Clinton's, um, the book she wrote, about her, memoir, her memoir of her time as Secretary of State that was going to be her calling card for 2016, in the hardcover edition she talked about her hard work on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and, she had, and in the paperback she cut all of that, because since then it had become controversial within the Democratic Party, okay. Bernie Sanders opposed it, so she just sliced it <laughs> out. It also helps you to get
0: appearances on TV, radio, and podcasts. The fact that you've got a new book out,
1: maybe I wouldn't. I, anybody who's writing a book because they think it's going to get them on radio and TV, maybe, in for also some rude disillusionment, <laughs> the capacity of the world not to pay attention to your book <laughs> is quite vast. But it's a reason. I mean, it's a it's reason a to have you it's, on the show, right? Yes, and it's certainly a motive that people do it.
0: Yes, and it's also a way to make money. Is it not?
1: I wouldn't recommend that. You're not making money off
0: uh, Trumpocracy.
1: Trumpocracy did fine, but uh, even even when a book does fine, um, it's it's not like selling cars. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, so there there are rare books, rare 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 books that you know, or they're like franchises, like Bob Woodward's franchise. But but mostly um, writing is you have you better be doing it for the joy of it because the financial rewards are puny. So how did Trumpocracy come into being? Was
0: it basically some essays that you'd written for The no. Atlantic? And, or was it a... Well, you that sat was... down and wrote
1: it. So, the I'd written an article for The Atlantic in January of 2017 that became a cover story in the February issue. That had a lot of resonance. And, and then I had done more writing on the theme of populism generally beforehand, and I did some other articles afterwards. And so uh, I was approached by a publisher... Let's let's turn this into a book and based on the articles. Based on the articles, right. but what I find is maybe that can be done by somebody. It can't be done by me. And so while there are there's certainly the um, research that I re- recycle and while there's certainly paragraphs and even in some cases three or four paragraphs in a sequence that appear from an article in the book, I, I can't work that way. Um, Partly because of the passage of time and the drama. Partly because I think more deeply. Um, I do tend to write fast, but I write very intensely. So uh, this book was written in June, July, and August of 2018. But it was written in in a pattern of I would work most days from about 5:30 in the morning to about noon, or sometimes one, not later than that, uh, and do that. Five, sometimes six days a week. does a process though. I'm not so interested. In okay, process. But that, but that to cram the intensity of the experience. Uh, but so, so this, this is um, it's not a, it's not an anthology in in that way. It's, okay. uh, it is, and the book that has to and, and a book has a very different architecture from a magazine article in a lot of in a lot of ways.
0: I couldn't believe the, the stuff you were saying in there. I can't believe that you haven't been, you had your ass sued off. Like you're calling him a crook. Yes. Uh, not, well, not beating around the bush
1: at all. Well, the problem is that, that for Trump is that there's a process, I guess in Canada too, called discovery, where when you sue somebody, they get certain access to your files. And so Trump is very careful. He threatens to sue people all the time. Yeah, yeah. But he, ne- he very, very rarely actually does it. And the one case where he did, he sued a friend of mine, Tim O'Brien, who's now uh, the editor in chief of Bloomberg Opinion. Um, at the time, O'Brien was—I'm going to—I think he was at the New York Times. I forget, but but he wrote an article um, in about 2003 or 4 denying that Trump was a billionaire. And Trump sued him. And in the course of this, Tim O'Brien is the only per, became the only person outside the Trump organization to have seen the Trump tax returns because he got discovery of them. And in the end. There was a settlement. As part of the settlement, Trim O'Brien cannot talk about what he saw in the Trump tax returns. But Trump paid. the case was dropped and Trump paid all the costs. So that tells you what happened. So Trump, I think, learned a lesson from that. And and the problem is, as he's become president, he's threatened to sue more and more often and it's now very public. The threats are very public and so is the lack of follow-up.
0: I'd like to turn to a little game I want to play with you called Trump the Novel. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to look at themes, and plot, and character. If I can go first, I'm going to say that the theme of my novel began in 2011 at the White House Correspondents Association dinner, where Trump was the butt of jokes by Mm -hmm. Obama. So the theme is humiliation. Trump was so humiliated by the experience that it triggered some deep yearning for revenge. That evening, of public abasement, rather than sending Mr. Trump away, accelerated his ferocious efforts to gain stature in the political world. I'm going to go on a little bit here, and then it'll, then it'll be your turn. In response to that, Trump said, It's such a false narrative. I had a phenomenal time. I had a great evening. And given his tendency to bullshit, it seemed to me to verify that it's humiliation. Adam Gotnick, a fellow Canadian, suggested that Trump's humiliation was as absolute and as visible as any I have ever seen. His head set in place like a man in a pillory. He barely moved or altered his expression as wave after wave of laughter struck him. There was not a trace of feigning good humor about him. Mm-hmm. Humiliation plays a role in the uh, Treaty of Versailles and Germany's, uh, you know, Hitler's rise to power. Humiliation was what happened when the Soviet Union disintegrated, and that's what's driving Putin. Populist nationalism, a social class, sees its perceived displacement as the result of a double conspiracy of outsiders and elitists. The outsiders are swamping us, and the insiders are mocking us. Widespread dissatisfaction with all professional politicians, a certainty of having been sold out, of feeling a complete alienation from both political parties, an intense sense of victimization. So politics of populist nationalism are almost entirely the politics of felt humiliation, the politics of shame. I'll stop
1: there right now. But that'll be the theme of my novel. What's the theme of your novel? I think that's quite fantastic. Uh, The Washington Post compiled a a 100 instances where Trump described people laughing at him or the United States. Mm -hmm. And to go back to have a deeper resonance, again, I did not compare Trump to Hitler. But the theme of the hearing of laughter was a a theme through many of Hitler's speeches, including the speech where he announced the uh, commencement of the Holocaust. He suggested the Jews had been laughing at him through all his life and he didn't think they would be laughing at him now. So that, that I think that's a very powerful theme. I, I would supplement this that 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 night at the White House Correspondence Center, one of the things that made it even more powerful. Obama specifically mocked Trump for the pettiness of the decisions he made. Obama had come to that White House Correspondence, he was a little late because he had just given the go signal for the raid on bin Laden. Right. So how, which he betrayed not a hint of. That night. That's yeah. a pretty serious decision. In because, contrast, uh, you know, because Obama was told at the briefing where he had to make the decision, he was told. But Biden said to him, "I have to tell you that the evidence for the existence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq was better than the evidence that Obama that Osama bin Laden is at that house." <laughs> okay. And that that came from a man who had opposed the Iraq War, right? And he said, but he had found that he had found more certainty about those weapons then about the location of Bin Laden. So it was a t- and and they're sending, I forget now how many service personnel, two or three helicopters. Um, and they were also giving up one of America's most important military secrets because the way that the methods they used to penetrate Pakistani airspace were the methods they had, had been developed for a raid on Pakistan's nuclear capability, if you ever had to do it. What's your theme? So I think that's a great theme. Um, and I think the the humiliation in Trump's life begins much earlier with um, this rejection by by his father but I have, I would say I if I were writing the novel I, I would not have Trump as my main character so the, it's got to be somebody else's humiliation because the problem to jump ahead with the character Trump is actually not an interesting enough character um, there is not because he's squalid. Okay. Right, so let um, me we're I mean, getting
0: into character now, as opposed to theme. But here. the two
1: you can't separate. No,
0: no, no. So, so,
1: so <laughs> you know, there's nothing loose. Like the Milton, Milton and Paradise Lost gives all the best. You know, what did Blake say of the Devil's party without yeah. knowing, he gives yeah. Lucifer all the best lines because you need to make your central figure a figure of some, simp- if not grandeur than sympathy. But so it's a great thing. I congratulate you. I, I two thumbs up. I, I concur on the thing Okay, so that'll be the main
0: theme then. The character... You've got some beautiful purple prose here. I've got to try and find it. Well, as president, Trump is cruel, vengeful, egotistical, ignorant, lazy, avaricious, and treacherous. That's not the purple prose part, though. Do you remember? You actually used alliteration. Oh, I'm sure yeah, but not just once about yeah. six times in a row. I've got to find out.. Uh, here we are. Along with all his boasting and bullying, his crassness and cruelty, his ignorance and indolence, his tantrum and his tre- <laughs> and his treasons, Donald Trump also carried with him the text of a demand that, this time, could not be shrugged off by society's leaders and owners. Not sure about that part, but anyway, I just wanted to... Yeah. Anything else to add to the character? You don't want him as the main character. I don't want him
1: as the main character. Okay, but who do
0: you want as the main character then?
1: You need to have someone who can have some moral development or okay. face a moral dilemma. I, I I struggled with this in another... I, uh, I wrote a book about my brief stint in the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. What's that called? again? Yeah, it's called The Right Man. Okay. And I had a, a problem when I wrote the book, which is what to do with myself. And the problem, most political memoirs begin with two cha- two, a chapter or two where the person tells the story of their life up to the time they arrived at the White House. And no one is blinking interested. Uh, so I wanted to leave myself out of the story. But then the problem is, well, how do you know these things? How do you account for my biases? And actually, I had played a small part, not an important part, but a, a real part in, in history. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with that? And so I struggle. Like, what did I, do with, what did I do with myself as a character? I want to have some dispassion for myself. And but I also, I want to, you know, not do anything to exaggerate the importance. And I wrote the first draft. And I, <laughs> my wife, um, who is a tough critic, uh, she read the first draft. Mm-hmm. And she handed it back to me with a one, with a ver- one very simple question. Can we afford to give the advance back? <laughs> just as an aside it's interesting I've been
0: talking to publishers about advances lately and advances you don't have to give advances back maybe you should tell your wife that yes. even
1: if you don't earn the money back right. it's yours well but if, if you fail to deliver the manuscript I think that's right <laughs> so uh, and her, her point was it didn't work So, yeah. so I had a intense struggle I spoke to a friend of mine who makes films mm-hmm. and I said what do I do and he said you're Gatsby you said you're Nick Carraway no one's interested in you you rented the little cottage across the bay from Gatsby and as a result you get to see Gatsby's parties and we are interested in you to the extent you can take us into Gatsby's house and not one step further mm-hmm. and so that's what you need in your and that's when I wrote my political novel I, I tried I wanted to write about the Tea Party, and about the struggle between the fanatics in Washington, corruption. And the name of that is? Patriots. Okay. The, the struggle between, my question, who are worse, um, the cynics or the fanatics? And and so I created a character, I needed a character who was intelligent and sensitive enough to register things, but ignorant enough, uh, and also had reasons to go play. And th- those are the things you need to figure out. Like, how is my, how am I going to put my camera on the little cart and move the cart through the scene? So you would need somebody who for some reason or another came into Trump's orbit who was a larger personality, but who's got a struggle, who's got a path of development. What about Mattis? Mattis is all BC. Mattis is a, a very noble person, but he's a finished and, and You don't Matt- think he can you don't think he can change or grow or uh, I think he can encounter a dilemma. Uh, I mean, I, he's
0: never experienced anything like this before. Sure, he must be, you know, he must be that, a different
1: character now than he was before he met Trump. I wonder. You know, M- M- Mattis was caught. I think like, we can understand Mattis because of a piece of found, candid video. Uh, Mattis was speaking to a small group of soldiers in Jordan, I think, about 15 people. And somebody caught him on a cell phone. On, uh, and you can see it's surreptitious because we see Mattis from the back and he's like remote. Uh, mm-hmm. And... and uh, Mattis said and this is a speech he'd obviously given many times before so I don't have to tell you my soldiers, sailors, airmen and marines that our country right now isn't all that it should be. Uh, we have to get back to being a country that's respectful to one another that's kind to one another and until then I'm asking you to hold the line for our country. Okay so you've got that as, as, Yeah that, I, When I think about this I think about how I, so I've got that as a piece like a that's perfect. So I plug that into the thing. But can he be my central character? And in a way, he's all these are real people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need also, if you're making it a novel, I need to be have a character I can make up, and yeah. move among the real people who are acting for known historical reasons, and then have a character whom I can use for my own purposes in yeah, a way that yeah. I cannot use a real person for my own purposes.
0: Well, I was thinking of uh, it's with Master, right? Is yes. It? And you tell the story of how he's. He basically has to lie.
1: Yes, McMaster's a very admirable person, mm-hmm. a more a very flawed person too, in a lot of ways, but very admirable. But this is the you get into the Trump orbit, and you meet these tests, and that's that's where the the interest comes in that people meet these tests, and how do you manage them? Yeah. Mattis has this too. I mean, Mattis was just involved in this stunt of sending troops to the border. Okay, so Mattis first the mission's stupid. Second, you're taking people away. These are people who. American troops are way overtaxed. I mean, they're sent all over the world. They're deployed. Just the pace of deployment. So just, when you, you're taking people away from their thing, families at Thanksgiving yeah, yeah, for,
0: for... crass vote-getting For crass it
1: vote-getting. And, you know, next Thanksgiving, they're going to be away from home somewhere, somewhere terrible where they really have to be. Mm. So if you don't need it, let them have Thanksgiving, for mm. God's sake. Mm. So, you know, you have, but then matters, do I quit over this? But the country may need me for some other reason. Those are the, the kinds of struggles that people have.
0: Um, I want to bring in Tom Wolfe here, if mm-hmm. I could, yes. to talk about uh, Trump's character. This is from Bonfire of the Vanities. There it was, the Rome, the Paris, the London of the 20th century, the city of ambition, the dense, magnetic rock, the irresistible destination of all those who insist on being where things are happening. And he was among the victors. He lived on Park Avenue, the street of dreams. He worked on Wall Street, 50 floors up, for the legendary Pearson Pierce overlooking the world. He was at the wheel of a $48,000 roadster with one of the most beautiful women in New York. No comp lit scholar, perhaps, but gorgeous beside him. A frisky young animal, he was of that breed whose natural destiny it was to have what they wanted.
1: Mm-hmm. that's not Donald Trump that used to be Donald Trump that was never Donald Trump uh, the, the secret there's a line I, I, I. this is not my line I wish it were I quoted it from someone else credited yes I always do um, that the secret of Donald Trump is that he's a loser who became a winner Donald Trump and this is the thing Donald Trump is a loser on the inside he never earned it himself is that what you're saying he, he never earned it he never feels worthy you know we use the word narcissist mm-hmm. to mean vain but The clinical narcissist is the opposite of vain. Yep. You know, Obama was vain. Obama divided the world, I'm relying here on the testimony of people who knew him well, into three categories of humanity. There was him, there were the complete idiots, and there were the not complete idiots. (laughs) And he always gave you the courtesy of allowing for the possibility, starting in the category of not a complete idiot. But then you might disagree with him. Or disappoint him in some way, and then you tumbled from not a complete idiot to complete idiot, which was very sad for you. But no skin off his nose because he was still, in, you know, up there in first class, and you just had fallen from premium economy to basic economy. Okay, Trump's not like that. Trump worries all the time what you think of him. He's needy, and that—that's that's, that's the, the thing that makes this one of the things that makes him so interesting as a villain is because he's so pathetic that he, he's not a Wagnerian villain. He's not Luciferian. There's nothing vaulting about him. Mm-hmm. He's needy and he's, desperate. Yeah, he's not a hero falling from no, grace. No, he's just he's a sad, sad person. Yeah. And, and okay. his wins are sad.
0: Mm-hmm. Here's Karen Horny mm-hmm. from 1945 describing the arrogant, vindictive personality. They feel that the world is an arena where in the Darwinian sense, only the fittest survive and the strongest annihilate the weak. The only moral law inherent in the order of things is that might makes right. In their relations with others, they are competitive, ruthless and cynical. They want to be hard and tough and regard all manifestations of feeling as a sign of weakness. Their bargain is essentially with themselves. They do not count on the world to give them anything, but are convinced that they can reach their ambitious goals if they remain true to their vision of life as a battle and not allowing themselves to be influenced by traditional morality or their softer feelings. That
1: does not describe Donald Trump very well. I thought it did. I don't. And we'll, we'll, we may have to disagree, and you may be right, but let me offer some reasons why I think it does not. Trump parades his feelings, and he frequently appeals for pity. He does not believe it. And he demands fairness all the time. He's always complaining that things are unfair to him. Mm -hmm. Um, As for what does he expect, Trump does expect things to be given to him. Everything was given to him. And indeed, when he tries to get anything for himself, he fails. Everything he's done for himself has been a failure. Even the presidency was given to him by James Comey and the Russians. Uh, His own campaign was a disaster. And and you can already see the 2020 campaign is heading toward disaster. He can't organize anything.
0: But he's going to get reelected.
1: Um, You and I are speaking toward the end of November of 2018, and I would say right now things are looking darkening for him because of the worsening economic news. We have come off the worst month in financial markets since the crisis of 2008. The price of oil, Trump tweeted just this morning that the price of oil is down, but when you talk to people in the oil markets, it's down because oil traders anticipate lower growth in China and the United States in 2019, world trade is shrinking, um, and the, when you look at the the interest pay rates for near-term and long-term bonds, what traders call the yield curve, again, they're not pointing yet to recession, but they're pointing to way lower growth in 2019, and the world's just full of bumpy things. So. Um, the most powerful predictor of whether he'll be reelected. Oh, and one more thing, the 2018 midterms mm. uh, are very, very ominous for him because America has this puritanical conscience that sleeps and it's mobilized from time to time. And Trump is mobilizing. The most important fact of the 2018 elections was not that the Democrats did well, although they did, but the astonishing number of votes that were cast. Uh, 49% of people voted. um, And how many of them weren't counted, too? That's another question. 49, almost half the country, literally almost half the country voted without a president on the ballot. That has not happened since before the First World War. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Republicans did incredibly well. They got, in the election of 2010, when they won, they got 45 million, 44 million votes. This time they got 5 million more votes than they did in their big year 2010. But the Democrats pulled out 61 million votes an unheard of number in an off year. And what it would just indicates is Trump has mobilized people. He's, inflamed, he's insulted people. Mm. And they're reacting against him. So negative economic news, mobilization of his political opponents. And the thing that he most hoped for has not happened, which is he hoped to goad and inflame his opponents to take him to their streets, re- rerunning the 60s, mm. burning American yeah. flags, big disorderly... And, and he could bring in law and order and... Yeah. And instead, they registered to vote and they went to polling places. He's, you know, what he, his problem. He's never dealt with an opposition movement that's led by women. And you know, I think one of the signs was hope for those who fear him, hopeful for those who support him, ominous. Was the first women's march two days after his election? Mm-hmm. Five hundred thousand women came to Washington. There was not one arrest. Yeah, it was a wonderful display. But this guy cannot cope with that kind of orderly, disciplined... I mean, no one even kicked over a litter basket. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 Never mind setting fire to anything. And right. and he wasn't ready for that. You,
0: you call him a crook. You say that he's basically making money off all different countries that he has his towers yeah. in, and that they're paying, paying his companies, and, and we don't know... How much, or how often, or, or anything about yeah. it? Why hasn't someone said about proving this? Like you, you're making all these accusations, but well, I didn't see any proof. Well,
1: there's no proof about the dollar amounts, but there's lots of proof. I mean, the, the 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 thing. Um, I think one of the things that um, is hard because to, some. Sorry, but if someone,
0: if if there was a some sort of report that came out that proved that the Saudis were putting money into a bank account of his, wouldn't
1: that get him impeached? You know, I will answer that. Because one of the things that when people read the book, they say, is there anything new in it? I say, it will seem new because you've forgotten so much. Okay. So you, to your question about the Saudis, in fact, we have the annual report of the Trump Hotel in New York, which was losing money until a five day, until the, the Saudi delegation who had booked it for five days and spent so much money in mm-hmm. five days, they moved the hotel from loss to profitability. Did they spend as much as Melania spent yes, in Toronto? Way more. But what there are is there there are there's not a single dossier, but there are pieces of evidence. Um, you you know that Trump, for example, that there are two Trump Towers in Istanbul, um, and you know that Trump has a contract. Uh, where they pay him something. We don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. We know that he's got a tower. Again, he didn't build these things. He just licensed his, his name. name on them. yeah. He licensed his name. But yeah. So we know there's a flow of funds. We don't know what it is. But the building is there. We know his name is still on it. We know that he's continuing to receive receipts. Um, and then there, there, there are little glimpses of, of things. But there's been no oversight. Now, Congress, uh, the, uh, the de- New Democratic House has the subpoena power. But there do- as a privately held corporation, the Trump organization is required to release relatively few documents. Mm-hmm. Much of what we know about it has been that it has sometimes had to file documents with its lenders. And then in bankruptcy proceedings, some of these documents have become public. And then you get a glimpse inside the organization's finances at various points. But the New York Times did um, this giant study of Trump's taxes.
0: Yes, recently. Yeah. Just, it was like just a blip on the... Screen and then they moved on to the next
1: crazy thing. I think this one will come back. What they they found, their source was um, someone inside the Trump organization, and and I think it's pretty, those who study this stuff obsessively have a pretty good idea who it was. Um, A retired bookkeeper who's now almost 100 years old and lives in Florida and and made things available to them. And one of the things they found, for example, was that Trump falsified receipts, the Trump father and son falsified receipts to change the value of properties. Essentially, they they would artificially inflate receipts um, in order to Be a kind of shell company. Or whatever yeah, yeah. So what you do is you try you were trying to make sure that the company looked more valuable at one period of time and less valuable at another period in time, uh, so that when you transferred it from one generation to another, you would avoid tax. Um, and falsifying receipts is a crime, uh, and there there are levels of tax mistake. People make mistake on their taxes all the time, and people even push the limits. But there's a le- degree of coordination and organization where you move from a- being aggressive to outright tax fraud. And the, t- the Times, which is so cautious in its speech, used, mm. used the phrase, a pattern of tax fraud in its report, and Trump didn't sue them. Okay, so we've got proof then.
0: We've got proof. <laughs> what, so what's gonna, what it's going to take to put him in jail then?
1: Well, I'm not even sure that that's the desirable goal. Um, but... My strong preference, I mean, de- depending on what Mueller finds, mm-hmm. is for a political outcome here. I think it, it will be much better for America if the new Congress checks him, the people around him who have committed crimes are indicted, but he himself is removed from office by an election. I think that'll be a much healthier thing for America than a, an impeachment process. There may not be any choice. If Mueller finds all the things that he might, then the country may have no choice, but Impeachments are a traumas.
0: One of the things I really liked in the book was the way that you... And this was about Russia. The release of uh, the emails from WikiLeaks. Mm -hmm. And then this very quick and precise response from the Trump team. Showing you that basically you're saying there is collusion here. Because... Look at, look at how they responded when that came out. They right. went into... They were ready. They were ready,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, this is the most disorganized and incompetent presidential campaign maybe ever. Um, but the one thing that they had a really rapid response to were... There are two WikiLeaks stumps, one in um, July and one in October. And in October, in particular, they were really ready to pounce on it. And, and thank you for noticing that. And I do a minute-by-minute chronology yes. to try to show how ready they were. hmm just uh,
0: talking about his behavior, when he was in Helsinki with Putin, mm-hmm. to me he looked like a beaten dog. He looked the opposite of an alpha male. He looked scared. Yeah.
1: Yes. I remember those images.
0: And same with Melania. Yeah. And when she was looking into his eyes, she was petrified. At least that was my take on it.
1: Yes. <laughs> well, I think it's pretty obvious the Russians have something on them. And although I have hypotheses of the different things it might be, I don't exactly know. It's also possible he doesn't know. What he knows is I've done a lot (laughs) of things that other people might take a dim view of, that the law might take a dim view of. Putin probably knows all these things, but I don't exactly know. I don't remember what I did. I don't even know all of the work of my organization. And I certainly don't know what Putin knows. And Putin may have ways of sort of frightening him and tormenting him and dropping hints. But um, Trump's connection to Russian money begins in the middle part of the 2000s and this is a point where he's, he's disgraced himself again in the world of business and finance and he can't get money anywhere and suddenly he's got a lot of Russian dollars flowing into his operation and suddenly he's got a lender Deutsche Bank that is very subject to Russian pressure and Deutsche Bank may have had no one else would lend to him except Deutsche Bank. Um, and Deutsche Bank had just a whole series of compromised connections with the Russians and so the, one of the equipment is did Deutsche Bank lend because somebody in Russia backstopped it or leaned on them to do it but at that point I mean they obviously they didn't know that he would be president or ever run for it but they they do try in countries they care about to cultivate people um, by cutting them in on on special deals uh, helping them out and um, and then they have this wonderful' uh, uh, Nash ours, and the guy's ours. And I think that, that Trump that, that the goal was for some someone decided that they wanted to make Trump one of ours, right?
0: Well, he's doing their bidding. Yeah, I mean, like
1: if you look at NATO for example. Yes, I mean, and I think they may not have such a fixed goal. Um, that they may just appreciate the chaos he's creating. Uh, yes, yeah. And, and and I'm sure there are many things he's doing that they don't like. But the point is that making the United States look ridiculous, uh, damaging relationships between the United States and its friends, all of that, it may not be a specific plan, it may just be putting the cat among the pigeons mm-hmm. and enjoying the chaos.
0: I interviewed Stephen Greenblatt. I love that book, yes. Great book. And uh, Tyrant. Book. Tyrant. I think you disagreed that. You don't think that he's a tyrant. You think he's, like, uh, just a, a kind of a, a Trump. He, he, basically, he sees the presidency as a business
1: opportunity, well, as opposed I, to being a tyrant. Yeah, I, I think he's not an ideological person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he is above all driven by... I think he's a pretty limited person in his ambitions, but he hates to be criticized, and he has a lot of legal jeopardy. So he, he wants to shut down the media because he hates being criticized. He welcomes it when journalists abroad are killed because of that same principle. And he also has to corrupt the administration of justice because if, he's, if, uh, if the administration of, of justice is not corrupted, he's, he's, he's in danger. But he certainly doesn't have the kind of wit or cleverness of a Richard III or, or the, um, the heroism of a Coriolanus. I'll just read uh, uh, this uh, description of Richard
0: III in in, uh, Stephen Greenblatt's Tyrant. The limitless self-regard, the law-breaking, the pleasure in inflicting pain, the compulsive desire to dominate, his pathetically narcissistic and supreme arrogance. He has a grotesque sense of entitlement, never doubting that he can do whatever he chooses.
1: I think that it's a, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a wonderfully chosen words, but bear in mm-hmm. mind that the, the main top subjects of of um, the green Tyrant*, Richard III, Macbeth, yeah. Coriolanus, those are the main people we talk mm-hmm. about. And they, the, there's some Lear in there, too. Some, yeah. some Lear. So there's yeah. not apply to Lear as far as we know. Mm-hmm. But what is what they all share, among other things, is they're all outstandingly physically brave. And Trump is not... Um, and so, one yeah. of the things that prevents him from being this kind of vaulting figure mm-hmm. is his lack of physical. physical. I mean, he's soft. Yeah. He's frightened. He's weak. You know, uh, he doesn't start off as a hero like Macbeth was, he for example. Nor does he have should, um, since the age of you know the, the Virginia dynasts who launched the country. That four presidents have been born to great wealth. Many presidents have been born to some affluence but mm-hmm. George H.W. Bush was born to affluence but four presidents have been born to great wealth the two Roosevelt's Kennedy and Trump and all of them in some way or other the three the three predecessors all recognize that being born to great wealth is in some ways long before they were interested in politics a problem for them as people um, and so T- Teddy Roosevelt threw himself into a life of um, physical hardihood. Um, he was a rancher he became a soldier um, and he uh just he just tested himself physically all the time. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was had a somewhat softer background, but once he had his illness, his terrible polio, again, that he just forced himself into a, a brutal pro- pro- program of physical makeover and an agonizing self-discipline to appear in public as mm-hmm. less in, injured than he was. Yeah. And John F. Kennedy, who was the sickest of them all from from birth, sickly, sickly man, uh, insisted on going into the Navy, which he. Had he had honest medical reports, he would have been not allowed to do. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. He was way
1: too sick for it. And then again, showed incredible courage, errors, courage yeah. uh, when yeah. his PT boat was sunk. And then, mm. and then, after one of the things that was so winning was um, very charming modesty I and mean, authentic. You know, his yeah. great line How did you become a war hero? Well, the Japanese sank my boat. <laughs> <laughs> Trump, there's nothing in Trump's life that corresponds to any of that. There's mm. no physical hardihood, there's no um, self discipline. Sure. Yeah, but that's
0: why you don't want to choose him because there isn't
1: much of a fall. He's already... Yeah, but that's why he's not like Greenblatt's mm-hmm. characters because they're interesting because of their capacity. I mean, Macbeth could have been, was a great man. Coriolanus, you know, full of fun, but a great man. You know, Richard III, a nasty piece of work yeah. all the way through, but certainly a formidable mm-hmm. man. And mm-hmm. Julius Caesar, so complicated. I mean, that you know, so many great qualities and in many ways a kindly person mm. um you know they're all different doesn't you know, so so i I, mean, I recommend this this book and yeah, it's, it's good a, fun, I, I listen yeah. to it as an audiobook and really it's like four hours long it's a great car ride but you know you can learn from it but trump doesn't quite do. fit in the box yeah yeah I,
0: I actually i tried to get him to say that uh, that all tyrants are the same but of course they're not all the yeah. same Two final questions. One has to do with just your reputation. Your and George Bush's reputation, mm-hmm. thanks to Trump, has uh, gone up quite considerably. I think certainly Bush and you. You're a hardcore conservative who yeah. what? Bridles at providing a social safety net.
1: No. So let me talk about Bush, who's the more important figure, and then I'll briefly, and then we can end there by myself. I don't think, um, I'm not a great believer in arguing about reputations while, after people's active lives are over and before they are dead. That is, the Bush record is the Bush record. Mm -hmm. And it will be assessed, it will be criticized. Um, And you need a bit of distance to... Bill Clinton said at Richard Nixon's funeral, Bill Clinton gave the eulogy at Richard Nixon's funeral, He he said, let the day end when we judge richard nixon's career on any one part of it rather than the whole of it taken together and i think that i mean with with bush i mean that you're gonna have to judge him as a whole and the failures uh and the successes defe- whatever deficiencies in judgment you may think there were along with whatever character and spirit you see in him and i i don't think also it's not a single Score. Um, I mean, obviously, pr- presidents are above all judged on success, staying and, in power as much as anything. Well, and results. So I, I had this. I've often I've used this a couple of times, so I'm going to use it one more. So the, the Bush presidency began with Pearl Harbor and ended with the crash of 1929, and it had Vietnam in between. So it, <laughs> it was a very stressful <laughs> presidency, and it didn't deliver good results. Um, and yet, there are amazing moments in it. Like I, I think that George Bush's handling of the 2008 crisis and I think actually one of the, the greatest... This is a controversial thing to say because it's so painful, but the, the, what happened from the beginning of the crash of 2008 through the summer of two was one of the greatest successes in the history of American government. That mm-hmm. um, This is something that could have been a global depression of 1930 scale. Mm-hmm. And instead it was merely a nasty, nasty recession that did a lot of damage both to the economy, to people's lives, and to political structure, but from which we are emerging without know collapse of democracy, without wars... and also the the joint effort by the outgoing Bush and the incoming Obama team. They're going to be teaching that a century from now as a model Mm -hmm. of how what happened between Roosevelt and Hoover, or Hoover and Roosevelt in the 30s is a model how not to do it, Mm -hmm. that that, um, their refusal to communicate and... They're either different separate machinations. He was smearing him too, wasn't, it wasn't well, he? me or Roosevelt? Roosevelt refused to talk take any responsibility. Hoover wanted to say, I want to do some things. Mm-hmm. Uh, people need to know they will be continued. Or not. Just tell me if I do this, is it okay or will it? and Roosevelt said, You're the president of the last minute, I have no comments, and there's no certainty. Whereas Bush and Obama had open channels of communication where mm-hmm. whereas Hoover kept trying to tie Roosevelt's hands. Uh, Bush took actions, but did, in a way that did not tie Obama's hands. And Obama then signaled that these limited actions of Bush were going to be accepted, that, they were, that, that Obama accepted Bush's measures. And so investors could react and see continuity of government through this crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the origin of the Bush-Obama friendship. And Bush and Obama have a much closer relationship than Clinton and Obama for mm-hmm. some obvious reasons. But they, they really had to work together through this crisis.
0: But as I say, my r- original point was Bush's reputation, thanks to Trump, yeah. has
1: has been revived. Yeah, but I think Bush's reputation should be seen as it is, and it will be, you know, reassessed and reassessed. And I okay. and I am going to leave it to and and this and this is what I say about myself. You know, people ask me about this question, and I just don't engage with it. And it's not for me to judge myself. It's it's for me to try to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. The things I said and did. In uh, 15 years ago, I said it from based on many of the same values and beliefs. You know, I'm not the same person because it's a, a decade and a half, mm. and things have changed. And I, 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 there are things I've changed my mind about and. If, to the extent that anybody's interested, I've tried to give an account in various places of why. In fact, I have a spot on my website. Mm-hmm. There's a whole like, five or six essays about th- particular things where I've changed my You've mind. You've
0: got lots of book reviews on your website, too, yeah, with some a... classic literature, too. I was very surprised to
1: see that. Oh, Happily re... surprised. I've, I've, yeah. There was a period where I was doing that every day. But, you know, you submit yourself to the judgment of others. You're not a judge in your own cause. So, but what I, what I do say is when people say, well, you know, I like what you say now. I didn't like what you say that." I say, well, If you care, and you don't have to, uh, but if you care, these are thoughts that come from the same place. So maybe you should like today's thoughts less, or maybe you should like yesterday's thoughts more, because my vision of the world, my vision of a person's responsibility in the world, that has not changed. I'd just like to finish off uh, with, uh,
0: you finish off with Hope. Yeah. And uh, Greenblatt, there's a scene in King Lear where a character is just about to get his eyes dug out and uh, he references in King Lear's nameless servant there's a servant that comes up and says this is wrong This this should stop and in King Lear's nameless servant however he created a figure who serves as the very essence of popular resistance to tyrants. That man refuses to remain silent and watch. It costs him his life, but he stands up for human decency. Though he is a very minor figure with only a handful of lines, he is one of Shakespeare's great heroes.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's, I remember hearing that when I listened to the audiobook about that. That's a beautiful observation, that's really, uh... Kudos to Green and kudos to Greenblatt for honoring that person. You know, many of us have seen that scene, not thought just in that pass by that moment and not given it the attention it deserves. Mm-hmm. One thing that makes him such a great reader is he gives every line yeah. the attention it deserves. Um, I think we're seeing that um, the situation is not so extreme with Donald Trump. I mean, that's um, Trump defenders will often say. Um, you know, it's just, it's, he's not as bad as the great evil doers of history. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, this reaction is disproportionate. And I, because it's not so bad, you have no excuse for not going along. I mean, there, there are cases in history where it took, as in that case, the name was, certain, extreme courage. Mm-hmm. You have to risk your life, your property, maybe go into exile to stand up for the right thing. There's no excuse for not doing it now that's <laughs> <And, Yeah>, right <sorry. laughs> you've got every reason to do it now do it now yes. and the downside I mean uh, and for those of us inside the Washington world the only that people are who, have, uh, if you're inside the conservative Republican world yes you forego certain opportunities to make a corrupt living Um, and that's maybe unfortunate maybe people could use that money Um, and there are people who are getting rich in the trump years I and mean, the fox and fox news creates this perpetual um, it's like a a, a, a house a, a a bonfire creates this insuck of, of pulling people toward the fl- to the toward the inferno of flame and Self destruction, uh, but the, the the rewards are so tempting, and and not just the big not just the big rewards that they pay the Sean Hannity and the Tucker Carlson, but for lots of conservative journalists, it just means you know you sign up for that project and say what they want you to say. It's an extra fifty, eighty, hundred thousand dollars a year in your household income. Um, you know, makes it people Washington journalists think that's money they notice. That's sending two kids to college. You mm-hmm. know? Um, so there are temptations, and there's certain negative pressures, especially. I've been fortunate in this regard, but some of my women comp counterparts have not been. There, there are threats, and they are scary. People had to change their addresses, or in some cases, move out of their house, and they're subject to all kinds of online abuse. Um, and sometimes they have to go to the FBI and show you know, death threats. Uh, but you live at a time when your country needs you, when your endeavors can make a difference, when you can make a real service. Um, if you do it now... You can do it before there's any truly dire danger, so do it. There's no excuse not to. Thanks for talking to me today. Thank you. It, what a pleasure. A pleasure.
0: David Frum is a senior editor at The Atlantic and the author, most recently, of Trumpocracy, published by Harper's, Harper, Harper Collins, in both the states and in Canada. Right. And it's in England
1: as well. It's in England as well. And there's now a South Korean translation. Excellent. So I'm very excited by that. (laughs) Thanks again. Thank you.